Happy Mother's Day to you mothers. Not everyone is a mother. I'm not. But we all have a mother, or at least had a mother. Ah, have a mother. Some of them have gone on, and they're waiting for us to come home too. You know how mothers are when it comes to waiting for their children to come home. And uh, the, some of us have mothers that are waiting for their children to come home, and it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful time. Uh, my message this week, of course, is continuing in the book of James, and I must confess to you right off the get-go that um, having gone over my message and reading it through several times, I, I have to admit that it's, it's a little bit scattered, and I think the reason it's scattered is um, the distressing events around uh, Pastor Art there in Calgary um, were heavy on my heart uh, watching how this thing was playing out. And uh, I, I guess it led to some distraction. Now, all the information I want to present to you in my message this morning is there, but you might have to fish like through a, a, for a needle in a haystack to, to get it in the right order. So I'll present it as I have it, and we'll pray the Lord's blessing on it as we, um, as we go into it. It is his word. We are looking at verses 12 through 18. And, um, and so in that sense, it is a tremendous blessing to be in his word. Last week, Pastor Steve brought us a message from Daniel chapter 3 and verses 8 through 30, although he looked at only three verses in particular, using the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, and his command to bow before his statue. So applicable for today. Pastor Steve described for us a faith to face the fire in four easy-to-remember points. And all of you right now that heard the message, you're going, oh, yeah, I remember all four of those points, no problem, right? Because I know that you guys pay attention and, and uh, you know, are really on top of that type of thing. But for those of you that may have not heard the message, uh, they were one, faith is rooted Faith is rooted in the word of God and the character of Christ. Two, faith is realizing. Three, faith is remembering that God always keeps his promises. He always has. He is always faithful and he always will. And four, faith is resting. When we trust God, we can rest in him knowing that he's going to take care of what he said he will take care of. Two weeks ago, in my previous message in the series in James, we looked at verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1, which contrasts for us the lowly man and the rich man. Although there is some debate as to whether this passage describes a rich, righteous person or a person that has obtained riches by oppressing the poor, the main principle we drew out of these few verses was that a person whose primary goal is to gain worldly wealth, power, and influence will suffer the loss of all. And in the end, like all men, even his own life. We read a parable of Jesus where he teaches about the vanity of riches. And we also read the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus to sum up the whole lesson. James, as the brother, half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, would have been keenly aware of both of these incredible stories. And we, by the grace of God's Holy Spirit, have access to James' 
commentary on these words of Christ here in the book of James. Today we are going to cover over twice as many verses as we did two weeks ago, so I hope you're impressed. As usual, we will read all of James chapter 1, but we will spend our time focusing on verses 12 through 18. So if you will turn in your Bibles with me to James chapter 1, we will read the entire chapter. This is the word of the Lord. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted 
from the world. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this is a beautiful passage once again, and it is a beautiful day on which you have uh, ordained this passage to be read by this group of people, and we are so grateful that your word is powerful, that it is an absolute anchor that will never change, that we can rest our hearts in the truth of your word as we see glimpses of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout our reading. We are grateful this morning for each person that is gathered to worship you. We are heartbroken that there is a pastor in Calgary, Pastor Arter, that is behind bars this morning for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would uplift him in his spirit, that you would bring about justice and righteousness in his life, and I pray that you would be with his wife and with his children as they are, um, I'm sure, um, struggling uh, with the challenge of everything they're going through this morning. But as we look into your word, we ask that you would draw our attention to the truth that we find here and that we would be built up, edified, by being in your word this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've titled today's message, Desire, Conception, Birth, and Death, and Life. God promises a blessing for those who endure temptation. In verse 12. As we enter this passage today, I just want to say a quick word about this word trial or temptation that occurs several times in verses 12 through 14. In verse 12, the same Greek root word that is translated temptation is used for the word trial way back in verse 2. So that means that this word can either have a positive or a negative meaning. In James chapter 1, verse 2, it has a positive meaning because we are exhorted to count it all joy when we fall into various trials. This is very obviously not a temptation to sin. No Christian ought to be joyful about being tempted to sin. In verses 13 and 14, the text explicitly says that God cannot be tempted and the key words there, by evil. The use of the word plainly is speaking of some sort of lure into sinful behavior. This is impossible for God. He does not have unholy desires, thoughts, or feelings. Nor does he want to give opportunity for his child to sin. So he will not tempt us with evil. He may bring about difficulties in our life to give us opportunity to grow in faith but he will not tempt us with evil. In verse 12, it is difficult to see if James is using the word positively or negatively or maybe both. It is a blessing to endure a difficult test from God, and it is a blessing to resist and turn your back to sin toward the righteousness found in Christ. So, this word can describe a tool that God uses like a marathon is used to test the conditioning of a runner. Or the enemy of our souls can use temptation as a tool to lure a person into sin. In order to know which meaning is intended with this 
single word, we need to look at the context. How many times do I say that to you guys, right? Context, context, context. The three key words of understanding scripture. Often English translators would use different words like trial in verse 2 and temptation over in verse 14 based on the context to clarify the difference for those of us that are reading in English. And we'll talk a little bit more about this later. But our passage today opens with a beatitude from James. A beatitude is a blessing pronounced on someone. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, gave many beatitudes to his disciples. The pattern goes something like this. Blessed is this kind of person, for they shall receive something wonderful from God. There are about 20 or 25 general beatitudes given in the New Testament. It's tragic, but I have read some Bible translations that replace the word blessed with happy. This word blessed means so much more than happiness. Blessedness is a position of being right before God in such a way that he showers his goodness on you regardless of whether you are happy or sad or anything else. Unlike happiness, which is temporary, blessedness carries the idea of a future and ongoing position of having God's face shine on you. Furthermore, it is ridiculous to say, happy are those who mourn. They're not happy. They're mourning. You've been there. You're not happy when you're mourning. But mourning doesn't remove a person from a position of blessing before God any more than a child that is brokenhearted is removed from the comfort of his parents' arms. Anyway, the first three Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 read like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus gives nine Beatitudes at the opening of this Sermon on the Mount. I just want to give you another quick reminder that the Sermon on the Mount is one of James's favorite stories about the Lord. He quotes or alludes to it over 30 times in this short letter about, of James. It is no wonder James led such a life of piety with the Sermon on the Mount as his guiding principle for living. In verse 12 of today's text in James 1, James pronounces a blessing on the person that endures. Not the man who is never tempted. Not the man who finds temptation easy to conquer. The blessing is given to the one who endures temptation. The falling into various trials from James chapter 1 verse 2 is a matter for all joy because it bears the good fruit of patience. And the enduring of temptation from verse 12 bears good fruit as well. In fact, it bears a crown of life. So let's look at this fruit of God's blessing. The crown of life is promised by the Lord to those that endure and are therefore approved. This word approved means found to be genuine, as in an approved coin rather than a counterfeit 
which is the most common way this word was used in the ancient Greek-speaking world. They would check to see whether money was approved or whether someone was trying to pull the wool over your eyes. And it says that this endurance, uh, the, the, the endurance that leads to the crown of life is for those that are genuine, approved. And this crown of life James speaks of would have been understood differently to James's Jewish audience than to say Paul's Gentile readers. Paul talks about a crown as well. But Paul's mostly Gentile audience was accustomed to this idea of a competition where the victor in some event comes out with a crown through hard work and skill. For the Jews, however, they would have understood this crown to be an emblem of royalty placed on the head of a monarch simply because he was born to it and approved by the prophet of God. The Jews did not really like this whole notion of competitive games, so loved by the Greeks and the Romans. Related to this idea, James also writes in chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, these words, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So what is the ultimate motivation for endurance? Love. It's as simple and as powerful as that. The passions of sinful temptation can only really be overcome by that which is greater. And that which is greater is love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes, Men can resist temptation because of the fear of other men or the fear of the law. The thief, for example, resists the temptation to steal if he is being watched and might be arrested. But the best motivation for resisting temptation is to love Christ. To love him with greater power and greater passion than your desire for the sin that you are facing. C.H. Spurgeon wrote once, Those who endure temptation rightly endure it because they love God. They say to themselves, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? They cannot fall into sin because it would grieve him who loves them so well and whom they love with all their hearts. And so James writes, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. 
later on in the same letter in chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, which we will look at in much more detail when we get there someday, James writes this, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So let's look at this path now from temptation to death that James so plainly lays out for us. And we've all experienced this. It will, I think it will ring true in our hearts if we have ears to hear. God tempts no one to evil. Temptation to commit sin does not come from God. God may test our faith, but he will never lay something filthy before us or expose us to sin. God does not test your faith by allowing an opportunity to cheat on your taxes or placing you in a situation that may lead to adultery or any such thing. Rather, the trials that come from God might be more like seeing someone in need of help on the way to church with a flat tire or experiencing an illness or a tragedy of life. These things are not the sort of things that promote sin or lure you into sinful behavior, but they can be tremendously difficult, nevertheless. We all know that if we've ever experienced someone that we love going through an illness or succumbing to death. Way back in Genesis chapter 4, when God is speaking to Cain, rebuking him for failing to bring to God an acceptable offering, God very clearly shows Cain that it is Cain and Cain alone that is responsible for his sin. God tells Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. In the end, Cain did not rule over sin. Instead, sin ruled over Cain. And he murdered his brother Abel out of pure spite 
and jealousy. This story of Cain and Abel is one of the most incredibly powerful stories in all of the Old Testament. I wish I could spend more time on it because it applies so directly to these few verses here, 12 through 14. Well, and, and on. Sin lies at our door when we do not do what is right. Temptation comes when we are drawn away by our own fleshly desires and enticed. And what is it that entices us? Well, very simply put, there are three categories, three main things that entice us. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Don't you dare lay the blame of your enticements at the feet of God. The Apostle John lays this out in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. He writes, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. We are, James writes, drawn away by our own desires. The phrase drawn away will be well understood by those of you that have done some fishing. When you place a lure on a fishing line in order to deceive the fish, I admit it, you're trying to deceive the fish, into taking the bait and being hooked, the work of that lure, whether it's a Ford fender or a spinner or a fly, is exactly what this phrase drawn away in verse 14 means. Something catches our attention that appeals to some base desire that we are harboring in our hearts. At this point, we still have a choice. Take the bait or turn away. First, sin draws us away. Like a lure draws a fish. Then it entices. Just as holiness can be thought of to consist of two parts. One, forsaking that which is evil. And two, clinging to that which is good. So these two things reversed are the two parts of sin. First, the heart is carried away from that which is good, and then it is enticed to cling to that which is evil. It is first by corrupted desires, or by lusting after and coveting some sensual or worldly thing, removing ourselves from the care of God, and then often, little bit, by little bit, committing ourselves to a path of sin. Our enemy, Satan, may certainly tempt us, but we are only hooked as our own fallen nature corrupts our God-given desires. We often give Satan too much credit for his tempting powers and fail to recognize that we are drawn away by our own desires, the scripture says. Tragically, some people practically beg Satan to tempt them by spending their time swimming among the lures. This desire then conceives and gives birth to sin and eventually death. At this point, a person is entering a very serious and dangerous situation. Death is hidden, but it is just around the corner. 
A person is one small step away from entering death's domain. Once we have been enticed, sin has taken us by the hand and is gently but persistently guiding us away from the truth and the life found alone in God through Christ. If we as believers have come to this point, we must cry out to God to strengthen us by his spirit, to turn away from our sin and toward Christ once again. We need his forgiveness so that our relationship with God can be healed. And I want to pause just for a moment here to make something perfectly clear. I am not suggesting that our salvation is in jeopardy because we have committed some sin. Can you imagine living like that? If you have trusted Christ, you are in him, and nothing can separate you from the love of God in him. But when we consistently walk in disobedience to the commands of Christ, we find our relationship to God strained and tainted. We can become prayerless, disinterested in his word, not seeking his wisdom moment by moment, failing to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and in general, apathetic or uncaring about our spiritual lives, even as believers. It is a kind of spiritual desert. If this is where you have wandered, you need to bring your sin to the cross of Christ and ask him to restore you, not necessarily to salvation, but to the joy of your salvation. Where you can walk, not in the desert, but in the lush garden of his blessing and intimacy with Christ. Up to this point, I have not mentioned about what I believe to be one of James's primary motivations for this particular set of verses, but I believe you will find it in Proverbs chapter 5. From there, and I'll let you study and read that on your own this week, James represents men's base desires as a harlot, which entices their understanding and will into its impure embraces, and from that union conceives sin. Sin being brought forth immediately acts and is fed by frequent repetition until at length it gains such strength that in its turn it brings forth death. Adam Clark, the theologian uh, uh, from the UK, says this, This is the true genealogy of sin and death. What about deception? The, the, the thing most troubling about deception is this. You can only be deceived when you committed yourself to believing that something is true. And that's why it's so important for us to be in the word. Deadly deception. Our enemy will try to deceive us into believing that the pursuit of our corrupt desires, whatever they may be, and we all have our own, and they may be unique to us, into believing that our corrupt desires will somehow, for the first time in the history of the universe, produce life and goodness for us. And if not that, at least satisfaction. But it never does, and it never will. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. 
slowly but wholly taking control. Sin will leave you longer than you want to stay. Sin will cost you far more than you want to pay. But God is good. I couldn't end my message there in verse 16, even though that was kind of the end of the passage. I had to continue because I don't want us to leave right there. God is good. God's gifts are always and only good. If we have any lesser view of our Heavenly Father, we don't know him as well as we thought or we have forgotten. Jesus made this very powerful statement in Luke chapter 11, verses 9 through 13. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, Will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, boy did he know our hearts, didn't he? Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God's goodness is constant. There is no variation with him. This relationship between God and light that we see here at the end of our passage today is a strong sentiment in Jewish thought. When James refers to God as the father of lights, he is giving us a little glimpse into his Jewish heart. And it is a beautiful thought, isn't it? I I find it a beautiful thought. According to theologian Theodore Hebert, the ancient Greek is actually the father of the lights. These are the sun, the moon, the stars that light up the sky. The sun and stars never stop giving light, even when we can't see them. Even so, there is never a shadow with God. When night comes, the darkness isn't the fault of the sun. It shines as brightly as it ever did. Instead, the earth has turned from the sun and darkness comes. The Bible says that there is no variation or shadow of turning with God. Whether in his understanding or his will, God never changes. This means that his revelation of himself in his word is not going to change either. Just because our culture has changed its view on abortion or homosexuality or marriage or family, do men somehow think that God is going to adapt his character or his word to match our preferences? I dare say he will not. This phrase, shadow of turning, has been understood by different theologians in two main ways over the centuries, and I think both can be helpful. The first understanding is that there is no shadow that is safe from the light of God. On earth, 
Shadows move and change as the earth turns, blocking the light from different places at different times. This is not so with God. Nothing is hidden from him by day or by night. The second understanding is using this phrase to emphasize God's constancy. In other words, James is saying that not only does God not change, there isn't even a shadow of change in our Heavenly Father. Both of these views are true in pointing us to a God in whom we can have complete and utter reliance. Our faith in him will never be disappointed, and our hope in him is an anchor that no storm will loosen. The believer, it says, is brought forth by the word of truth, by God's will. James understood that the gift of salvation was given by God and not earned by the work or, or obedience of man. It is of God's own will that he brought us forth for salvation. This phrase in verse 18, brought us forth, is the same phrase used in verse 15 that we just looked at, where James is writing that sin brings forth death. The idea sort of is gives birth to death, produces death. But God brings forth life. He is showing us how these two things are exact opposites. Sin brings forth death. God brings forth life. What do you choose? Sin and death? Or Christ and life? God's good work begins in us, but there is more and greater yet to come. We can see God's goodness in our salvation as he initiated our salvation of his own will and brought us forth to spiritual life by his word of truth, that we might be to his glory as first fruits of his harvest. This would have been especially true of those who first received this letter from James. The first Christians were Jews. Because Jesus died and rose again in Jerusalem, while the city was filled with Jews from all over the world, they were the first to experience and trust the gospel. Three times in the early part of his letter to the Romans, for example, Paul uses the phrase, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. These scattered Jews that James is writing to here were indeed firstfruits. The gospel would go out from them and eventually to the Gentiles, and the kingdom would grow, as it were, from a mustard seed to become the greatest of all herbs, indeed a tree, Jesus said. But that does not get you and I off the hook today, sitting out there at the ends of the branches. Even if we are a mere branch, way up on the tree, we are responsible to spread the good news from wherever we are as well. As we tap into the trunk or the true vine for our life and our sustenance, we have the tremendous opportunity to grow, bear fruit, and bring forth shoots as well, as if we are a first fruits.
Folks, I cannot emphasize this enough. Talk about Jesus to those who need to hear. With everything that's going on in the world right now, the harvest is indeed ripe. People, to a degree like never before in our lifetimes, I think, are searching for some anchor of truth. If they observe your life of peace and joy, truth and love, kindness and gentleness, and then learn that it is because you are connected in a living way to the Lord Jesus, God can use that opportunity to save one more soul from eternal hell and transfer him or her to eternal life. We would be wise to consider ourselves a kind of first fruits for the word of truth, primarily for our families, then for our friends, and then out to the community at large. The life of Christ begun in us can flow out to our culture of death and transform it for the glory of his kingdom. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, the more we dig into these words of James that your spirit inspired, the more we stand in awe of your power and your wisdom, the more we are blessed by your care and your love. We have spent many years, Lord, living very, very comfortably. And people around us, many of them, never felt a need or an urgency to seek hope. But today, you have brought about the opportunity for us to bring forth and present the word of truth so that those that are lost and dying can enter into eternal life. Thank you that you have laid out for this passage how it is that temptation can lead to death, but also how faith can lead to life in Christ. We pray for mothers around the world today. The world may not want to celebrate Mother's Day, but we do, because mothers are ordained by God from the beginning. And they are a tremendous blessing to us. I pray for all of the mothers that may be separated from their children or have lost children, that you would have your special hand of care and love upon them, that they might experience your peace and joy, even through tears. And for folks that have lost their mothers and long to see them again, we pray that you would place in our hearts that hope of joy that we will see them again in Christ. Father, help us to be consistent in our Christian walk. It's so easy to slip. It's so easy to become apathetic. And we do not want to live this way. We want to live in that deep intimacy of being in Christ moment by moment. And we pray that you would, by your spirit, lead us to this end. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.